Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we chat about advertising, media, and marketing. I am your host, Omar Oaks, Campaign Magazine's Media and Technology Editor. Later in this episode, you can hear my interview with Bloomberg News' Sarah Freer, who has literally written the book about Instagram, which I can assure you is so much more than a place to gawp at celebrities and post pictures of restaurant food. Uh, Incredibly, Instagram is 10 years old next week at the time of recording, and we discuss how being bought by Facebook has changed the platform in so many ways and what the future holds for advertising on Instagram. But first, joining me to reflect on another week in the long-running saga we're calling COVID Adland, it's Jeremy Lee, Campaign's Premium Content Editor. Jeremy, how are you? I'm very good, Omar. Good to see you again. I was um, pleased to hear you and Gurdjit discussing the merits of Kingston-upon-Thames and how apparently it's a place for old people to retire. (laughs) That's what she seems to think, yeah. Yeah, it's like Frinton-on-Sea. But no, she's not coming this way. I don't know. You're slightly older. Perhaps she'll be moving down this area one day <laughs> i'm quite happy in the metropolitan hubbub of um, sw19 thank you very much um it seems like half the industry works in southwest london nowadays so uh you can relate to that so lots of news to reflect on this week as it has been of every week during covid adland um firstly um something that's more abstract but very interesting we've had an intervention from byron sharp the marketing guru himself. Um, he um, was interviewed by our colleague Kate McGee uh, late last week, and he described it as embarrassing arrogance that marketers would think people were interested in what they had to say about the virus. Uh, apparently, the best response to COVID-19 was uh, largely to stop advertising. Now, Jeremy, this is fascinating because um, we've heard a lot over the past six months or so that essentially what you should be doing if you're an advertiser during uh, these lockdown times is to keep up your marketing spend. You want to make sure that you're still there forefront of people's minds. So, um, you know, people aren't forgetting about your brands. Um, But Byron Sharp, who's obviously incredibly respected, um, is saying something that seems to be at odds with that. What's going on? Well, it's interesting because he he said this thing, you know, he said in the interview, um, and it sort of counters all the stuff that we've had from the Advertising Association and Les Benet from DDB, like, don't go dark, you know, you you say you've got to continue advertising throughout. And I think in Bar and Shop's defence, he was making the point of don't make ads that are COVID-related, don't pretend that your brand cares because people don't care what your brand thinks. And the arrogance that marketers have is that they're waiting for a, a brand marketer to say, say what their brand thinks about COVID. So I don't think he was ruling out advertising entirely. Um, it was just don't do the COVID messaging because people don't aren't interested. Yeah, I mean, I've forgotten how many times that um, between ourselves and on this podcast as well, we've lamented uh, the COVID genre of advertising, which is pervading our screens and airwaves nowadays. What Byron is saying does chime with um, what Orlando uh, Wood from System One, you know, the author of Lemon, um last year where he was saying at the beginning of lockdown where people are looking for escapism almost when they when they're tuning in on an ad break they're not looking for advertising necessarily to reflect their lives like what lies behind that is the whole purpose of advertising is to kind of to persuade to inform people about products and services not necessarily be too rooted in reality do you think that's right or no i think you're absolutely right i think um you know you have to read what Byron uh, Shop wrote uh, 10 years ago about brand purpose. And it's a theme that he's had consistently that he thinks 
it's not the place for brands to have to take a, a stance necessary because it's arrogant and he used that word and used that earlier it's arrogant of brand marketers to think that people care because they probably don't and you know he made the point that brand brand marketers they, they didn't see brexit coming they didn't see trump coming they didn't see uh, boris johnson get elected so they're so sort of dissolute they know they're so detached from reality in their own little sort of bubble um of self-importance that they, they have no concept to to most people's real lives and you know whether you believe that or not I don't know. I mean, perhaps there's an element of truth there. You see, you know, see the thing Ben and Jerry's was the was the great example like, over. Um, you know, they put that tweet out over the refugee crisis and people trying to cross the channel, and it was all sort of a bit, a bit touchy feely. And Pretty Patel or the the homeless wrote back again, just describing it as a brand of I think they put overpriced um, junk food, which I thought was just it was actually <laughs> quite a good response. <laughs> now, what what price? The uh, Ben Bar and Shop used that example of Ben and Jerry's. Like most people on the street would think of Ben and Jerry's not as having a big brand purpose, but as having like chocolate cookies in it. That's the reality. Uh, whether agencies and, and some marketers might think otherwise, but they probably in their papers to can they probably do claim otherwise. But that shows something a bit detached from reality. I don't know. What do you think? I have a lot of sympathy with Ben and Jerry's in particular because it comes from a place where they've been doing a lot of purposeful advertising over a long period of time. It's part of their brand. It feels authentic when they do something. Um, also in this interview, um, Byron and Kate talk about Coca-Cola, who you know went dark for a couple of months completely. If Coca-Cola suddenly started doing a load of really purposeful ads, for me, it doesn't really fit with the history of Coca-Cola advertising, which is more generic and what you traditionally think of mass consumer marketing. You're right, but Coca-Cola came back with that amazing George the Poet spot. Um, and if, as you say, if Coca, and that was sort of a celebration of, you know, we're out of COVID. It wasn't related or necessarily, you know, referred to the pandemic, but it was a celebration of the time is right. But you're right, and Coca-Cola did purposeful advertising for Pepsi-Cola, and you know how bloody shit that is. I think the hardest challenge is for a brand like Coca-Cola, if it did want to do more purposeful advertising, if, if that's what it wanted to do, it's like, well, how are you going to introduce yourself into that conversation in a way that seems genuine? Yeah, and I think they, you know, they have they have tried in the past, they with sort of slightly vainglorious efforts, and they, there was one they did a vending machine on the board between India and Pakistan, and they claimed that this vending machine brought peace to the region. I mean, it was it was risible. It was risible. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was under Jonathan Millpool about four years ago, and I, I think he won Marketer of Creative Marketer of the Year at Cannes. And you just think that's the examples that I was sort of referring to earlier that the brand marketers, sort of the arrogance and being out of touch with any real world kind of experience. Perhaps that's one example. Perhaps. Uh, definitely worth reading this interview. Uh, just Google, get in your Google and type in Kate McGee, Byron Sharp campaign interview, and it will come up. You know, we look like we're heading into a second wave in the UK. I don't, I don't think it's sustainable for most brands out there, particularly with Christmas coming up to just go dark um, just because we're in an unusual period. Moving on. For the agencies, we've had yet another, we talked about Pablo the week before last. Now it's Elvis. We had a clever headline on our website. Elvis has left the building. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're shutting down or anything like that. They are just leaving their offices. Uh, they're leaving in favor of a creative hub. Uh, they were working in London's Covent Garden and they're going to relocate to a smaller studio space within their parent company, Next15's offices in London Bridge. Um, very briefly on this, Jeremy, do you think we're heading to a world where the smaller, uh, this isn't strictly an independent, I guess, but smaller independent agencies, they're just not going to have offices anymore. 
Well, it seems that way. Another example that emerges, Lee Stellani has, you know, Renate, well, not Renate, has cancelled the lease on its building in Alfred Place. It's not going to have a, an office anymore. So they're looking at getting a communal space. So it does seem that those sort of aims of that size that are independently owned have realised that they don't really need to have the space and they don't need the overhead either. Um, whether this is something that's going to be, I suppose it's going to be medium term and it's this, you know, we've had, we work for a medium sized publishing company, whether we're going back to our medium sized office in Twickenham. It doesn't look like it's going to be anytime soon, does it? So um, I think there are lots of larger holding companies where they've created these campuses where they're going to have, you know, they've got they've got a problem. They've created these massive buildings uh, and the hope that they're going to save, you know, money back end resources. But there's no no one's going into them. So um, I think the smaller, more nimble independents might have put it right this time. I don't know. What what, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're right about what's going to happen in the medium term. I find it incredibly depressing if this is really the long-term prognosis. I can't stand it. I mean, it's good for me personally because um, we just had a newborn in the house, and I and I, and I get to see my daughter um, more often than I more more than I would. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. But just in general, just you know, these meetings over Zoom and not being able to, you know, have those kind of chance encounters and and it's just I didn't come into this industry to be working from behind a screen. I know that all jobs have become like that with digital increasingly, but I did it because I actually do like talking to people. But the idea that we should be kind of looking at this as like a, a great thing because, you know, we're all remote and we're going to have flexible lives. You know, that might work for some people. That's great for some people to have the option, but I don't think it's what the vast majority of people came into this industry for. Yeah, uh, you're, you're probably right. I think you, the truth of the matter is that we're going to see more agencies, I suspect, doing what, um, Pablo uh, and Ligas and Salus has done, you know, over the next few months. That's the re that's the economic reality, isn't it? And on the point you made at the beginning about um, Elvis has left the building, there there are two jokes. I've been in journalism so so long. There are two jokes that marketing subs love, and one is when anything happens to agency, the Elvis agency, that oh, it moves offices, which is always Elvis has left the building. And the <laughs> other is when anything happens at News UK's The Times newspaper. And that's always the times they are changing. Those are the two <laughs> that have been repeatedly over the past 20 years, if you do a search through any of our archives. So there you go. Uh, yeah, there's um there, there's a certain muscle memory that comes up editing when you have to go through so many <laughs> stories. These things tend to happen. Unfortunately, not everyone is in a fortunate position as Jerry Millie is being able to walk to work if they should choose to do so. <laughs> it's a 10 mile round trip. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Uh, we're going to move on to my interview with Sarah Freer from Bloomberg News to talk about Instagram. And then we'll be back with Jeremy to talk about some of the advertising in the last week. I'm here today with Sarah Freer. She reports on social media for Bloomberg News all the way from California. Um, she's an award-winning journalist and she's just written a new book. Well, it's not certainly of a book. It came out in April, didn't it? It's called No Filter, uh, the inside story of how Instagram transformed business, celebrity, and our culture. Um, so it's a great time. It's actually, um, I'm sure you planned this. It's Instagram's 10th anniversary coming up on October 6th. Um, so before we get into the book and some of the interesting things about it, um, what do you, what do you, how long have you been at Bloomberg News? Um, how long have you been reporting on tech? And how did this book come together? I've been at Bloomberg for about nine years, and I've been reporting on social media companies essentially since 
Facebook's IPO in 2012. So uh, I've seen the, the way we cover them transform as these platforms gain power, as they turn from mere corporations into societal forces shaping the way we live and act. Uh, the way we cover them has had to change too. And this book was born out of a, a recognition that Instagram is this incredible force in our culture, in our lives. And yet we knew so little about why or how or what happened after it was acquired by Facebook. I think a lot of people know the story of this app that was launched in 2010 and had explosive growth and then was acquired for a billion dollars, which was unheard of at the time. But now it is just this tremendous force, um, still a part of Facebook. And um, the story had really never been told until my book. Mm. And um, there are some good little inside accounts in that. I mean, how difficult was it to get insiders to speak to you for a book like this? It depends. I I think that there are some people who are would still not want to speak to me about what happened with Instagram, either because they uh, feel the story is too painful or they feel they would have retribution from Facebook or there's no benefit to them to telling the story. But I did speak with hundreds of people. And the way I did it is any for any journalist, you know, it's just a matter of building trust over time. Uh, I started out with some people I knew who introduced me to other people who introduced me to other people to build this web of, of knowledge. And then of course, when you hear a story from one person, you can't just go with that. You have to, you have to bounce it off others and try to figure out, okay, what is the truth here? What is as close as I can get to the truth? I didn't want it to just be this uh, corporate narrative uh, where I was only talking to employees and figuring out the hero's journey of these founders who built these built this app, sold it, and rode off into the sunset. Like I don't think that that would be a helpful book. I instead wanted to tell the the story, the full context of Instagram, uh, talking to not just insiders but competitors, users, uh, people who became famous on the app, people who. Uh, whose careers were shaped by it in one way or the other, young people who, who felt immense pressure on Instagram. So I, I wanted to build this sort of fuller picture. And when you think about Instagram being 10 years old now, it's, it's amazing that um, Facebook announced this um, acquisition in 2012. So the vast majority of Instagram's life on earth has been under um, the Facebook umbrella. Um, presumably it would have taken a while for kind of those cultural changes, if I can put it that way, to happen as now being, you know, even come to the point where now it's Instagram, part of Facebook, um, is what the branding says. From your perspective, how easy was it for Facebook to kind of achieve that cultural change? How resistant were the people at Instagram against that change? Well, in my opinion, the story really gets interesting after Instagram is acquired by Facebook because these founders are told that their creation, they'll be able to stay in charge of it. It will be independent within Facebook. And that's how the branding worked. I, I, I mean, you probably remember, like we thought of Instagram as like a separate company within Facebook. Facebook was an entirely different set of values. Facebook really values growth. 
Uh, they really value increasing the amount of time you spend on a platform, uh, the amount of interactions you have as you use it. And a lot of what they do is in service of that growth. That for the Instagram team was like, they, they, had, they had no interest in, in showering people with notifications and recommendation, telling them what to look at based on recommendation algorithms. They wanted to more carefully curate the experience. They wanted it to remain very simple. Um, and of course, over time, they lost that battle. And I think the most striking thing that I learned in reporting out this book, after 2016 or so, when Instagram successfully introduced Instagram stories and started to accelerate in its growth, when it was very clear that Instagram was going to reach a billion users, that was right around the same time as Facebook was hitting its first big public hurdles in terms of its impact on society, political maneuvering, et cetera. And Zuckerberg started to look very closely at the amount of help that Facebook was giving to Instagram. And he started to think, well, maybe the reason people are so critical of Facebook or one of the reasons why we aren't growing as quickly is because they have an alternative that we've actually been promoting. Maybe Instagram is cannibalizing Facebook's potential. And he started to restrict resources for Instagram and um, restrict the amount of people they were able to hire, the problems they were able to solve, the products they were, they were able to release. The branding that you're seeing now, like Instagram from Facebook, the notifications you're seeing on Instagram redirecting you to Facebook, the recommendation algorithms built in to Instagram that reinforced what you've already seen, that try to, try to get you to spend more time on Instagram, are all indicative of Facebook's influence and Zuckerberg's insistence that Facebook is the main product of Facebook Inc. And that was really, that was really surprising to me because you would think like he owns Instagram. He, he should probably be excited about its success. Um, but in fact, he was threatened. And do you think that um, that was driven by, you know, the fact that he obviously created Facebook himself and he took it personally? Or do you think there's a, there's a wider business reason for him taking that decision? I think it, it was an emotional decision, which I, I, he has a reputation for uh, being robotic and emotionless. But, but in fact, he is, he is quite interested in his legacy and in Facebook's legacy. And he wants to be known as a, one of the great men in, in technology. He really wants the public to understand how much of Instagram's success is because of Facebook's help, because of his help, because of Zuckerberg's vision for the future of the platform. And so do you think that that tension, if I can put it that way, do you think that that's resulted in maybe less options for advertisers for people who want to to obviously facebook and instagram in terms of the tools that you can use are incredibly powerful in terms of reach and targeting but just actually having um i guess a, a more facebook set facebook i'm talking about the blue app not facebook the company mm -hmm. facebook as opposed to instagram a facebook centric policy if i can put it that way do you think that that's created less choice 
um, for advertisers because you know there's a lot of debate you know in the US as well as the UK obviously about monopolies and whether there's enough enough choice in digital media for advertisers. Well, absolutely. I mean, Instagram is no longer an alternative to Facebook. It's it's a different spin on the same the same base of data, the same advertising system, the same business system. If you want to advertise just on Instagram, you have to have a Facebook business page. That reduces choice, right? Because if you didn't want to have a Facebook account, then you shouldn't have to have one. But but they they make you do that, um, and partially it's because they want you all going through the Facebook ad system. And it certainly allowed Instagram to, to make money a lot faster uh, because if it wasn't for Facebook's advertising system, it may have taken a lot longer. I, I reported this year that Instagram has more than 20 billion annual revenue. So about a quarter of Facebook's overall revenue comes from Instagram, which is just a tremendous business, bigger than, bigger than TikTok, bigger than Snapchat. Is it that all the growth that we're seeing on Facebook is mostly coming from Instagram and maybe WhatsApp as well? And if that's true, for how long has that been the case? For the revenue growth, yes. Yes. I think it's it's very fair to say, based on my sources, that Instagram is the main driver of growth in Facebook's revenue and, and potentially in users. And one thing that's really interesting is Facebook doesn't really want to make that attribution. That's something I had to learn from my sources. They don't want to. They don't want to direct your attention to Instagram success. In fact, Facebook is going to stop announcing individual numbers for its properties. It's not going to tell you how many people. Eventually, once Facebook starts slowing down, you're going to see um, that we don't get numbers for how many people use Facebook versus Instagram versus WhatsApp. And already, we haven't gotten updates on how many people use Instagram since that more than 1 billion user announcement in 2018. And Kevin Sistrom, the CEO of Instagram, had to fight to be able to announce that. And of course, he's no longer the CEO. Yeah, I mean, that that's really interesting. Um, and of course, um, there's a bit in your book where you talk about how um, the, the looming challenge of TikTok, you, you kind of characterize as Instagram being um, used as a, as a kind of weapon by Zuckerberg to take on TikTok. I mean, how has he done that and how do you think it's gone? So I think it's important to understand what the Instagram founders really valued in their creation of the product. They wanted to build something simple that solved a problem for people. And so everything that they changed about Instagram was a battle because there was always this question like, do, is the product going to stay simple enough? And is it solving a problem that users have that we need to solve? When Instagram took on Snapchat and created stories, that was a, a fierce debate internally. People thought like, why doesn't Kevin Systrom get it in his head that it's important that we build something like this because people are facing too much pressure on Instagram to have a beautiful, perfect life. And that's actually bad for business because they're posting less. And so, you know, whereas you and I in early Instagram days, we may be posting a few times a week. Now we're only posting when we go out to a lovely restaurant or when we are at a birthday party or something. And eventually Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, the founders of Instagram understood that and they had tried to address that problem in a sort of an adaptation of Snapchat. What Zuckerberg is trying to do with Instagram and Reels is solving a 
a business problem as opposed to solving a user problem. Mm. And this is something that's really frustrating to people, to employees at Instagram when they talk to me. Like, if you're just trying to solve a business problem, then it's going to be very annoying to your users. That's something like notifications, for instance, are solving a business problem in many cases. If you're, if you're sending people a lot of notifications, you're trying to distract them as they're scrolling through and get them to use this other product that they didn't have an intention of using. That's because you want to drive more audience to that product. Is it actually helpful to those people? Well, if it isn't, then they're annoyed. And Reels to me is just, it's, it's that problem. We didn't necessarily need Reels on Instagram. It's still very hard to find Reels. Um, I'm not sure what they want me to use it for, uh, except to repurpose TikTok videos. I don't think that it's a really a, a strong viable, I could be proven wrong, but I don't think that it's a strong viable competitor to TikTok, except in markets like, like India where TikTok is, is weakened or banned. Mm. It's, it's been fascinating to see how the established players, namely Facebook and um, YouTube, uh, YouTube slash Google, um, have sought to react to the rise and continued rise of TikTok with, I guess, I could be unfair and say copycat products. Um, and you, you just wonder kind of these, these beer moths in social media, where is the innovation coming from? You kind of, do you think that that's maybe why TikTok has taken the world by storm just because people have just gotten so used to the kind of same old social media companies not changing that much in the last five or six years? I actually think that TikTok is more entertainment than social media. I think of it more like YouTube than like Instagram because what it is, it's a place where you go to see people create not so much about their lives as about their their observations their comedy and regular people can perform i think it's sort of democratized internet performance if you remember vine vine was was a very similar thing but it was just slightly harder for the average person to use and there's a lot of smart things that tiktok has done for example the watermarking on the videos that if they get shared elsewhere it'll say TikTok in the corner. So people know if I want more content like this, I go to TikTok, which is actually very similar to what happened. Cooper and everyone, they kind of put out their TikTok videos on Twitter or other platforms. That's exactly how Instagram grew in the early days when they were able to, if you posted an Instagram to your Instagram feed, it would also post to Facebook, to Twitter, to Tumblr, to Foursquare. You could choose to post it everywhere else as well. Um, and so I think that TikTok is, is smart to do that because that's proven to work. All of that said, I do think that TikTok is backed by a ton of money. And the amount of the force of advertising, especially in the U.S. market, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on Twitter, ByteDance was one of the top advertisers for a while to really get TikTok to be boosted in the United States. And I think it worked. Mm. And and I think I think the pandemic really helped um, increase appreciation of it because of the way the algorithm works on TikTok. It's it's like this escape. 
Yeah, and I remember uh, my first wrote a proper feature about it. I guess it was November last year, um, which may seem early for some people, late for others. Um, but just kind of using the platform really for the first time and scrolling through it, I was just kind of struck by how different it seemed in terms of how funny it was, how irreverent, and just kind of it really did um, feel it felt like it was content that you weren't getting anywhere else. Um, and that's the first time in a long time you really thought, wow, this is interesting. And as you say, that the algorithm is just really good at keeping you on there. But it's it's not just about the short video content and the algorithm. It's also about who's creating there, what kind of stuff they're creating. And that's something that Instagram understood and Facebook really has not. I mean, Instagram in its early days was all about having direct relationships with people who are creating on Instagram, TikTok, I've written, has gone a step further and they're making sure that creators are getting paid. Mm. They're getting brand deals. They're getting um, introductions to Hollywood agents. They're getting music deals. TikTok is facilitating that so that those people become a more established part of our culture. It's really a, an interesting way of, of thinking about staying power for an app. So do you think that um, Instagram has maybe, when you look at TikTok, and we could talk about Snapchat as well in terms of the way that they um, have tried to work with creators, do you think that Instagram um, slash Facebook has more to do in terms of working with creators, in terms of creating more attractive ways that brands can work with so-called influencers or whatever you want to call them? Instagram had this uh, philosophy that they would help people gain um gain an audience or understand how to use instagram or understand how to be creative there but they would not actually go the extra step of getting them paid and that was a sort of a position of privilege for instagram because instagram was the one place where people could have sort of the portfolio of their lives like this is who i am if you go to my instagram you can see and i think that they have they have competition for that now in in that uh, other platforms, especially TikTok, are more willing to take that step to make sure creators get paid. And it's forcing Instagram's hand, making sure that they have a creator fund, rolling out Instagram shop to more people, uh, rolling out the ability to monetize IGTV videos. Although, I don't know about you, but like I can barely find IGTV on my Instagram now. <laughs> like, so complicated the app has become so crowded but yeah I, I think that they're they have to they have to do a lot more it's now possible to give people tips during live videos on instagram do donations to their businesses so i think that they are being forced in that direction mm. And um, it's also a burgeoning e-commerce platform as well. And, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people recently um, about in, in the UK specifically about how they've built their business almost entirely in some cases on Instagram. And it's crazy some of the, the, the numbers that they're telling me about how, just how important it's been. And these are kind of different varying sizes of company. Um, do you see that? Um, how important do you see as e-commerce um, as being important for Instagram going forward? Is that where the future lies for them? It's going to be brands trying to turn into people and people trying to turn into brands. It's like, it's like everyone on Instagram is, is about creating content mm. and in that those lines are blurring ever quicker. And I don't think that, I, I think a lot of people who maybe aren't heavy users of Instagram 
realize this is the new economy. Like this is the way uh, people are are building the foundation of new businesses. This is how this is where entrepreneurship is happening. Entrepreneurship in the sense of like if you're a baker, if you want to launch a makeup line, if you want to launch a fashion line, Instagram is where you really have to be. Um, and so I think that that is what people don't. We tend to trivialize Instagram business as like all about influencers and and narcissistic kind of content. And there is a lot of that, but um, even that is a huge business. Mm. I, I just wonder. I mean, obviously, face, advertising is still core to Facebook's business. But you just you look at what's been happening with Instagram with e-commerce. You know, payments can you know you can do transaction within the app. What they're doing with WhatsApp. Um, I forget the name off the top of my head. The company they've acquired in India, where they've kind of really you know kind of getting to that market and using WhatsApp as an e-commerce platform. You just wonder. In do you think in five years' time, Facebook, how different of a company do you think? it could be i think it'll be a, a, i think they're doing a, a very sharp turn to e-commerce right now um i think within five years what you're going to see is is a mega network you're going to see instagram facebook messenger and whatsapp all integrated so that say you are a business owner on instagram you can take your orders through whatsapp and then post about it on Facebook. You can do all of that. And they're already starting to integrate that. If you were the early Instagram employees, you would be a little bit horrified because basically what Instagram was supposed to be is in the early days was like this place for creatives and artists to show each other a window into their lives and introduce them to, to what they see through their camera. The thing that I was heard when I would talk to these early employees is like, we just don't want to want Instagram to turn into a mall. <laughs> and then when I talk to the current employees at Instagram, they're saying, wouldn't it be great if Instagram was the new mall? Like <laughs> if, if Instagram was like, you know, how you used to like in the nineties, you'd go to the mall and you, you didn't have to buy anything, but you were just like window shopping and hanging out with your friends. And, uh, and that would be so awesome if Instagram was like that. So I think that it, the platform has has evolved tremendously and that may be where it's going. Now, the problem is if these platforms become super commercialized more so than they are already and, and not just in the, the subtle way, like I think when you see people post about products now on Instagram is usually weaved into their overall aspirational lifestyle, like, like, oh, you know, DM me to see what pants I'm wearing um, if you want a pair because I have a discount code, by the way. That's like kind of what where it's at on Instagram now. And if it becomes more overtly selling, then will regular people like you and I feel, I mean, I don't know, maybe you have an influencer business and I just don't know. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> will we feel like Instagram is not the place to post about our daily lives? Even uh, friends of mine who are not influencers are starting to use Instagram in that self-branding sense um, where, where they'll say, I went to this restaurant and 
I ordered this dish and mm -hmm. I recommend it or um, more so than as a um, here's what I did today. Yeah, it's, it's amazing just how that concept of brand is permeated just to everyone. Everyone is a brand, even if it's not being in a work context. It's amazing. Um, so what's so what's on the horizon um, for, for brand Sarah Freer then? Have you um, after having done this book, are you are you looking forward to do another one? I'm sure you've got no shortage of content uh, to fill a book. Uh, what, what are you working on next? I definitely think at some point I will write another book. I'm interested in in these big questions about these companies that become forces in our lives and in our society and how they got there and also what we can do now. Um, and one of the things that I'm very focused on for the next few months is the U.S. election and elections around the world um, and how the platforms are affecting that. But I also think we need to look into the proliferation of misinformation and uh, how this sort of negotiation between giving everyone a voice and letting harmful voices gain momentum, like that kind of thing. It's like, like where, where do the platforms come in here? Uh, what responsibility that do they have to monitor this? And I, I don't think that that's a book. I just think that that's an area of inquiry. But I'm also very interested in these social platforms as the new like engines of the economy, like creating uh, the new celebrity, the new entrepreneur, what that means. Like all of these questions are really interesting um, because this is how our future is being built. So I'm just digging into them. Yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating thing. It's That's why it's so interesting to be writing about technology in this day and age, because um, all these platforms are being created and quickly, quickly, quickly become so important in our lives. As you say, some people's careers and businesses depend on it. And there's kind of no real um, discussion from the outset about is it right that they do X, Y and Z? Do they have too much power in some areas? And suddenly, you know, overnight, Facebook is nearly three billion users, for example. And they, they seem like they're too big to do anything about. And their focus historically, the incentives that they have historically have been about growth, right? They are so much more focused on adding more people to their platforms than they are about serving the people that they currently have on their platforms. And the same has translated to our lives and the way we live, right? We are so focused on creating um, content that boosts our followings and uh, gets us more comments and likes and less focused on, uh, on quality. And so I think that the ways that we measure success are, are sort of broken, honestly. I feel like we need to interrogate all of the things that we're aiming for with these businesses because if they are these tremendous societal forces, should we measure their success by how big they get? Or should we measure their success by how well they execute on being stewards of our lives? Mm, it's a really interesting question. Um, well, I can say that we've had a very successful conversation and I'm going to let you go now. Um, the book is called No Filter, the inside story of how Instagram transformed business, celebrity and our culture. Sarah Freer, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And we're back with Jomi Lee, Campaign's premium content editor. I hope this counts as premium content, Jomi. Um, 
Jamie, you're on Instagram. What do you, have you been on Instagram for a long time? What do you like most about it? You seem to post fairly frequently. Um, yeah, I've been about a year and a half. I post, um, really like you said in your introduction, I post pictures of my, what I've got for tea, uh, stuff like that. No, I'm not, I'm not. What, you've got for tea? <laughs> well, what, you do, well, like, well, it's like Jeremy's food porn or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're particularly into like, um, you know, a curry or something like that. Um, no, I do. I do enjoy it. I, I like it a lot. And I'm, I'm not on other social media channels. I came off Twitter. I came off Facebook. But Instagram is seems to a relatively safe space, and there's no sort of you don't get all that hideous bullying and abuse on Instagram. And I, I just I find it quite an enjoyable, enjoyable medium. I know you you were on it or may still be on it, but you're, you're not a very avid user. Why is that? I am. Um, I don't really get instagram i'm like the only person i mean it's quite embarrassing to say for someone who works you know who writes about media tech i mean i I get it but i don't get it in terms of how to be a user that i kind of would make interesting stuff for other people um but just generally i i I originally had an idea where i was going to post like really boring things on instagram so kind of has you know it's a as a counterculture thing against um all the kind of the idyllic pictures that people like to do you know um but then i thought well no one actually wants to boring content that you know it's just a stupid idea and then i thought well i'll just use it purely professionally i'll kind of like put up my articles and stuff like that and I, thought, oh, was, I don't know i I've, I've just i think with all of these things now i know you're not on twitter but i love twitter and i use twitter quite a lot i think you should pick the social media that kind of fits what you want to do with it and i like you know sounding off about this that and the other and i try to be careful what i say but i do like to have an opinion and i prefer using twitter that's what I like, and that's what I'm going to do. Instagram, going back to what you're saying, I think you can do all those things. You know, you can do boring and you curated. That's the joy of it. And I actually, this goes back to we had that conversation about that awful new Astrap with the Sunny and the, you know, the and the and the, bot, uh, the pocket tap and how whether that was deliberately mm, meant mm. to be shit or whether it was it's just shit. And I think you can put things on Instagram that are deliberately shit and it's funny. <laughs> And that's part of the joy of it for me. So I use it in a, as a sort of um, an Asda ad light fashion. It, it, it's there to be to be laughed at. As yeah, well. uh, clearly I need you as my Instagram social media consultant. Um, you definitely do, mate. Um, you're obviously uh, a natural at that, whereas I need to get better at it. Enough about social media. Let's talk about old school television, shall we? Uh, the first ad is, uh, this is by John Lewis. John Lewis Home. This is called For the Joy of Home by Adam and Eve DDB. You're going to shortly hear a clip of which um, I hope it comes across on audio. It's a humorous situation that a family finds himself while spending more time at home. So on page 52, if we look at paragraph What do you think, Jeremy, of this latest offering by John Lewis? Well, it answers one of the things I bang on about every week about humour. It's used humour, hooray! Mm. That's great. It's you know, it's got the soundtrack from on the Muppet Show. It's quite funny. It, it, you know, it, going back to Bar and Shop, it represents a, um, a a family living during COVID time. That's that's fine. The only problem, see, I find a problem in it, no matter what, is that it's um, it's using humour when John Lewis isn't actually facing a particularly funny time. If you're a if you're a member of staff there, or if you're um, you know, if, if, if you, uh, sorry, if you are a member of staff there, they're shutting another stop. So I don't know whether, if I, if I was a member of staff and I saw it, I'd probably be only offended. I'd probably be like, oh, that's missing the tone a little bit. That said, uh, I quite like it. It's very John Lewisy and it's funny. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it definitely falls into the category of COVID ads that are actually quite good, aren't they? Um, next 
up, we have Mercedes-Benz. Um, this one is showcasing Mercedes's safety features and they've used quite a dramatic tale of a boy and a fish. This ad is created by Anthony. What did you think of um, Boy and the Blowfish? It's very different from Mercedes ads that used to be done by A and B, which are probably you know, most memorable. This one reminded me of an Audi ad in many ways. It was slightly more conceptual. I don't there's uh, there isn't a car in it. There's if there was an Audi uh, logo, it was very subtle. I think it might be in the windows in the room where the kid sees the blowfish. It was fine. Um, perhaps the lack of a car made it a little bit too obscure. Um, I, I thought it was it was it was okay. How about you? Yeah, I thought it was all right. Um, I don't have a lot to add in terms of the content, but just generally, uh, I think what you say about um, Audi's effect is quite interesting. Um, people might roll their eyes as soon as I mentioned Mercedes-Benz, you know, talking about car advertising, because the caricature of car advertising is it tends, because it's done for international markets, it tends to be no dialogue. Um, they, they're quite generic. And because, particularly in the UK, where there are quite strong broadcasting rules, actually, about car advertising, there's only so much you can do, because you can't really show them racing their cars and being unsafe and being irresponsible and the rest of it. The, the link to Audi is because, yeah, there is a concept behind it and it's not ostensibly about a car. They're not kind of pushing those features and showing you how wonderful the exterior is. It's trying to create a brand, you know, like most consumer marketing. Um, so it's interesting. I guess on the other side, how much can you do that when it's still seen as a luxury brand? You know, how, how much do you need to appeal to a wide market? And finally, uh, it's Nokia. Remember Nokia? They're still around. Uh, they've revived uh, a James Bond-inspired uh, campaign uh, to, to um, tie in with the release of No Time to Die, uh, the new Daniel Craig James Bond movie, which was, of course, postponed, but is finally coming onto theaters soon. Okay, Google, text T. Targets track to exchange point. 36 hours in pursuit. Target on the move. Permission to engage. Negative, Nomi. Unauthorised. Killjoy. Um, and if you can see all these ads on our website, campaignlive.uk, and if you go to the end, I assume you'll watch them to the end, listeners, but if you go to the end, you'll see she's she's receiving a call from M, who is played by Ray Fiennes. Uh, this ad is by Grey London. What do you think, Jeremy? It's like many of those ads that are you know, linked up to films, it's really quite clunky. Um, you're right in that, who remembers Nokia phones? Uh, not many. Will this ad make you remember Nokia phones or realize all the sort of the, the tech that's got all the good points? Probably not. Um, I don't think it was that great. Um, I think the name of that film now is even more, um, you know, out of, out of time than, than it was before. No time to die. <laughs> and the and the fact is that's called the only gadget you need, is it? Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't think it was brilliant. Um, and I don't think it's going to be a huge amount for Nokia. And I, I may be proved wrong. How about you? <laughs> but that movie title does beg, beg the question, when is the right time to die? And I'm not, I'm not sure I really want to know the answers to that. Um, but 
anyway, um, I, th- I think it, I think it's all right. I think um, it's a, it's a, it's a good piece of content. I th- I think actually remembering particularly when I was a child, um, and you know a lot of these you know that they, they they won't say that these ads are directed towards children, but definitely young people who are kind of interested in technology and gadgets, right? Um, I think actually it's a dirty little secret. This sort of thing, movie type, really works quite well. And it's kind of attention grabbing and particularly if they they do the the content in the right way then it just works it it, it reminds me I, I shouldn't out this person but we do have a colleague um at haymarket media group who um, until recently had the original nokia 3310 my god who's that uh i'll, t- I'll tell you after we start right. recording i'm not sure i should out this person i'm sure they wouldn't mind but it doesn't matter um literally they had they didn't have any plastic on the front of it. They, they, it was covered in sellotape and it was incredible. It still worked and everything. And he, he said, well, I, I like this phone. I don't need anything more. The battery still works really well after 15 years or something ridiculous. So why should I? <laughs> and I, I replace my phone every year. So this is alien to me. They were great phones. Though. And I have a lot of you know, latent um, affection for my old Nokia 8510. They were brilliant phones, but I don't know whether this is going to be enough to sort of Far up a new generation. Did you complete Snake? Oh, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, I want proof of that. And we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, we're talking about Snake now. So now it really is time to get out of here. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining me again on the campaign podcast. I hope you will join me again soon. Yes, I'm off. Thank you to Ben Lonsborough for editing and co-producing this podcast. And thank you, listener, for listening to the campaign podcast. And do remember, you can get all the latest industry stories and watch the ads on campaignlive.co.uk. Please stay safe wherever you are and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.